Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's Indo-Daily is brought to you from our sister podcast, The Bell Tell. The IRA. The Irish Republican Army. It's a title most people associate with the provisional IRA. But they had broken away from what became known as the official IRA at the beginning of the Troubles. Hours after the ending of the 72-hour IRA provisional truce, a truce which ended violently but promptly at midnight last night with the resumption of bombings and shootings throughout the province. The officials went on ceasefire in 1972, but never fully disappeared. Um, the officials did not declare an end to their campaign. They said that they still retained the right to defence and retaliation. And that actually meant over the next five, six years, the officials did continue attacks on the security forces. Political republicanism also split into what continued on as Sinn Féin, allied to the provisionals, and into the Workers' Party, connected to the officials. How did this split come about? Who were the big personalities involved? And could the official IRA still exist? What happened ultimately was that the officials around 1976-77 decided not to formally disband, but to rebrand in some ways internally the armed organisation as Group B and to just not talk about it and then ultimately to deny its existence. Dr Brian Hanley is a lecturer in Trinity College in Dublin. He is the co-author of The Lost Revolution, the story of the official IRA and the Workers' Party. Dr Brian Hanley, you're very welcome to The Bell Tell. Brian, I'm sure you've heard this quote many times and, and I'm starting to believe perhaps it's apocryphal, but Brenton Bain's quote about the first thing on the agenda being the split. The IRA, as it was in 1969, has split in many, many directions. But the big one, the original one, was what we call the official provisional split. What was that? What was it about? Well, it, it was about a lot of things, but really by the time it happened in December 1969, it was about what had happened in Belfast the previous August and the, the violence that had occurred there, and also about a long-running dispute about really what the role and the politics of the IRA should be across Ireland. And that involved whether or not Republicans should take seats in what they consider to be the partition parliaments of Leinster House 
and Stormont and even Westminster about whether they should ally with other radical forces, including even communists in a kind of broad national liberation front, and whether they should move their politics specifically towards the left and really regard armed struggle as something that would happen as a, in a latter part of the process rather than put everything towards an armed struggle to end British rule in the short to medium term. Now, those questions were being debated throughout the late 1960s, and they were causing you know, quite a lot of dissension within the movement. But what really brought it into sharp focus was August 69 in Belfast. So you can't discuss the split without talking about what happened in Belfast and, and all that came from that. Obviously, that's when the troubles begin. Nationalist areas were being attacked or under pressure from loyalists. So I think one of the, again, it could be a cliche, it could be apocryphal, but the IRA, I ran away. Was that really the case? Yeah, well, they didn't run away. And, and I don't believe it was painted on any walls either. Certainly not in August. And, and I saw no evidence for it. But it's interesting that that became a touchstone in the way that the split was remembered. And of course, what happens is over years and over decades, as former comrades fell out and, and this rivalry became deadly. I mean, this wasn't a, a friendly parting of the ways. By the mid-1970s, the officials and the provisionals were killing each other. They invested a great deal in, in the memory of this split and how it had come about and who had been who'd been uh, found wanting and so on. But what you had in Belfast was a relatively weak Republican movement, but one that was very active in things like housing and civil rights. And as tension had mounted in the summer of 1969, the IRA in Belfast were led by a man called Liam Macmillan, um, and he had reported to Dublin that they'd got maybe about 120 volunteers and then another number who were attached to things like the FENA and coming them on, wider numbers of kind of uh, uh, Republican families and so on. And they had about 24 weapons. They weren't very well armed, but the IRA in general wasn't very well armed because it wasn't. Um, it wasn't foreseeing an armed camp campaign anytime in the immediate future. But he essentially, when the trouble began to occur uh, in August, there was a call from the civil rights movement in Derry to take the pressure off Derry to try and stop the RUC and so on deploying forces from Belfast to the bog site. And Republicans held demonstrations on the Falls Road and essentially they, they tried to besiege Hastings Street RUC station and so on. There were clashes and loyalists presumed that was the beginning of a, a general Republican insurrection. They began to attack nationalist areas and the IRA uh, used the arms they had. Uh, well, the first person killed in Belfast was Herbert Roy, who was a loyalist from the Shankill, who was killed by gunfire from St. Comgall's school. Uh, two of the, the gunmen in St. Congo's were Joe McCann and Anthony Dornan, uh, and that was kind of well known at the time, who were young IRA members. But the IRA wasn't prepared for a major battle with the police, the special constabulary, or even with armed loyalists. So they were outgunned. They attempted, in many cases, I think Jerry Adams has written that, that the IRA played a crucial role at various moments in stopping the loyalists going further into nationalist areas. But that would be in, 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 on the Falls Road. In Ardoyne, in particular, there was a lot of, 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 of attacks from the Loyalist side, and people felt that the IRA should have done more. And in the aftermath of the violence then, as things settled down, behind the barricades, Republicans are very prominent in the defence committees and so on. And if you look at photographs of, of the walls in West Belfast, you'd see, join the IRA, up the IRA, this is free Belfast, or you see, keep out and so on. 
but you don't see the famous slogan. And that's because the IRA actually began to recruit pretty widely in the aftermath. But internally, there are people who say who were saying, we should have been far better prepared. We should have had far more arms. Why didn't we? It's because the leadership in Dublin are too concerned with politics. You had veteran Republicans in Belfast like Billy McKee, Joe Call, and so on, who dropped out of the movement in the 60s for various reasons, who came back and who accused the leadership of having let down Belfast. And this becomes a touchstone then for, for many later arguments. Um, it's certainly the case that they were unprepared and they weren't very, very well armed, but it wasn't the case that they ran away. Liam McMillan, Billy McMillan, that's a person who, who who I have known people who have known him. He was the leader of the officials in Belfast before he was killed in the INLA feud. And um, What sort of person was he? Billy McMillan was really a major figure in Belfast Republicanism. And I suppose the fact that the officials were eclipsed in the kind of uh, media retellings later on means he, his importance isn't kind of as recognised as maybe it should be. He was from the Lower Falls. He was a scaffolder by trade. He was an Irish speaker. Uh, he was involved. His family were involved in republicanism going back to the 20s and 30s. And he, along with his brothers, joined the IRA in the 30s. And he'd been jailed on a number of occasions in the 40s and the 50s. And he's, in many ways, regarded as a very traditional Republican. Um, he says himself that the new left-wing ideas were only adopted very, very slowly and very, very reluctantly by himself and others in Belfast. But he is committed to Goulding and the Dublin leadership. He does attempt to mobilise the IRA in August 1969, and he bears then the brunt of the, the criticisms from those who return to the movement or those who later join it as having somehow let down the, um, uh, uh, the, the nationalists of Belfast. But he's still commander of the official IRA then at the outset of the Troubles and into the takes part in the fighting during the Falls curfew, for example, um, his nickname is the Wee Man, and he would have been quite widely known in, in, in Irish language circles and so on in the city as well. And if you look back at coverage of, of, of his death, newspapers like the Andersonstown News, for example, it's on the front page and they all talk about what a loss this man was to, to the kind of nationalist community. So he was he was quite a major figure. It, it does seem that these tensions came about as a result of the situation on the ground in Belfast. N not perhaps as it comes across in some history books and some maybe simplifications of the history that simply a large part of the IRA drifted to to pure Marxism, Marxism without the republicanism, even as far back as the late as the late sixties under the leadership of Cal Golding. But for you, it's a much more practical issue, really. Yeah, and I think it's it's much more complex than that. In that the IRA had begun to move to the left during the 1960s, but they were very, very careful to avoid labels like Marxism. And in, indeed, I think only Sean Garland, who was a senior IRA member from Dublin, he might have been the only one who would have called himself a Marxist, possibly Roy Johnson, who, who, who's a, an interesting character in this as well. But a lot of the leadership were people who saw social agitation, protests over housing, protests over unemployment, involvement in trade unions, as a necessary new way of making republicanism relevant to people. They were prepared to listen to communists and to socialists of various descriptions, but the movement, you know, didn't adopt those policies wholesale. It's a very cautious move to the left. And I think the Marxist term is overused. But what's also sometimes forgotten is how intensely anti-communist Catholic Ireland was. I mean, 
most of the IRA were based in, in the South, and that had been the case you know, since the, the Civil War. And the South, the Catholic Church was a very powerful institution. Communism was seen as beyond the pale by many people. And even the label communist was, was at best something to be avoided. That begins to change a little bit in the 60s. And there is the, the effects of the global kind of radicalization going on. But it's, the label is thrown around when the split happens. And there certainly are people in the provisionals who call the officials Marxists and say these people are Moscow-led and so on. But I think it was a lot messier and a kind of a lot more untidy in many ways. And the big issues about abstentionism and so on probably would have led to a split anyway, but it might have been drawn out over a much longer period. It would have been far less intense. The events in Belfast made this suddenly a matter of, of life and death. Could you tell us a little more about Sean Garland? Yeah, Sean Garland is really central to the story right up to the 1990s and beyond because he involved in the IRA as a teenager in the 1950s from a tenement in Mountjoy Square in Dublin from a very Dublin working class background. Um, joins the British Army in order to facilitate an arms raid on their barracks in, a, in Armagh uh, in, 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 prior to the border campaign. Um, is jailed for a period in Belfast during that campaign. And then in the 1960s is, is one of the IRA leadership who does become very influenced by, by socialist ideas and, and socialist politics. And he becomes, certainly after the split, as seen as one of the more hardline of the official leadership, seen as one who, from 1973, visits Moscow, becomes very much associated with Moscow-line communism, but also then as somebody who takes a, a, a very... Uh, hard approach to splits. So he would have been hated by those who broke away to form the INLA, for example, and he would have been hated by people in the provisionals as 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 the kind of person in the officials that they would have seen as a, as, a, as a threat. He's shot and badly wounded during the feud with the INLA, for example, near his home in Dublin in, uh, in 1974. But he survives and then he also becomes General Secretary of the Workers' Party. And he's very prominent politically within the Workers' Party, but he's never elected anything so when the split occurs in 1992, he's left with the name Workers' Party and a rump organisation, but the TDs, who are much better known public figures, then move off to Democratic left. But Garland, of course, remains active with the Workers' Party and remains unrepentant and committed to, to what he sees as, as, as socialist politics into the 21st century. He's arrested as part of this investigation by the United States uh, into uh, fraud involving North Korea. And, and the production of fake dollars and so on, and ultimately um, escapes extradition to the United States. And this adds, obviously, a very, very interesting footnote to his, his career, um, but would have been very important internally within the Republican movement and then within the official uh, Republican movement um, throughout. And so what becomes known as the official IRA and the provisional IRA are born as well as an official Sinn Féin and a provisional Sinn Féin. And they begin then on a very separate path. Although, in the beginning, the, the official IRA, what became known as the official IRA, continued to engage in what they would see, see as armed struggle against the British Army, against the RUC, and uh, even carry out assassination attempts. They continued on for a number of years. Yeah, I mean, what, what happens is there's a split, and of course, both sides contest each other's right to have these titles, and, and ultimately the terms provos and stickies and so on are, are used by, by people to, to kind of identify the groups. But the, 
the officials did not give up the gun. They believed there was a role for armed struggle. But I suppose a key difference fairly early on was that the provisionals identified the problem as being the British presence and believed an opportunity was coming to begin essentially a war against the occupier as they saw it. The officials didn't think that moment was there. They didn't think they were in a revolutionary situation. They thought things had certainly escalated, but the movement for civil rights needed to be pushed on. Uh, social and economic struggles needed to be pushed as well. <clears throat> and armed struggle would play a role in that. So a lot of what they'd done in the 60s, for example, in Dublin was if there was a strike on, um, they would burn buses taking strike breakers to a factory, for example, uh, or they would destroy landlord's property if there was a housing dispute. Um, they blew up uh, an American-owned fishing boat in Galway, you know, as a protest against the kind of uh, multinational involvement in Irish fisheries. And as the conflict in the North began to erupt, they wanted what the officials began to talk about was a policy of defensive retaliation, that if the British forces or the state forces carried out repressive measures, the official IRA would respond. But they wouldn't begin an all-out armed campaign because they didn't think there was the basis for one. So that's one of the reasons why you see these kind of um, attempts by the official IRA to target the unionist establishment, to bomb houses on the Malone Road or to bomb MPs' homes. Uh, ultimately, Senator Jack Barnhill in Straban is shot dead by the official IRA. And this is uh, uh, in retaliation for internment or for British Army raids in nationalist areas. And they would have differentiated that from the provisional IRA's bombing campaign, for example. They would have said that we have a more focused methods of, of using armed struggle. But at the same time, certainly after internment, their units are doing the same things that the provisionals are doing. They're trying to shoot British soldiers. They're using, you know, they, they do plant bombs. They do plant mines. They do kill a number of soldiers in, in Belfast, in Newry and Derry and so on. Um, but they themselves, it might be unclear on the ground to the actual people involved, but certainly the leadership don't think there's a situation developing where they're going to be able to force the British out of Ireland. Whereas the provisionalists from an early stage are saying that that situation is, is going to develop pretty soon. They also find themselves, these two IRAs, feuding with each other, using violence against each other, which would seem counterproductive perhaps to someone looking back at it. But clearly at the time, perhaps it was inevitable. The nature of the split again, and it depends on where you, where you live. So Actually, in rural areas of, of Northern Ireland, the split takes longer to develop and is less intense. So people talk about the IRA in parts of Armagh, uh, Tyrone, even Newry and so on. Both officials and provisionals cooperating with each other into 1972 and at least maintaining some kind of relationship with each other. Whereas in Belfast, very quickly, things deteriorate. Now, again, you, you're looking at a, at a very intimate society and nationalist Belfast also being pretty intimate. So you're talking about people who have either known each other for years because they've been in the same movement or often went to school together or were related to each other or, you know, had met socially. And then suddenly they're in rival organisations. So what begins to happen is the dominant group in either area would be accused of the, by the other of throwing their weight around and, and this might lead to fights and might lead to armed retaliation. Um, and both sides accuse each other of being the aggressor. Um, in early 1971, there's a spate of, of beatings and kidnappings by either group and a young provisional called Charlie Hughes is shot dead um, in, in Belfast and he's the first 
to, to die in what becomes a regular occurrence over the next decade, really, uh, in, in these clashes. And then there's always attempts to try and, and, and stop the feud developing, to try and after internment, for example, again, they're forced into cooperation in a lot of places. But this rivalry never abates. And there's obviously political reasons for it. And at a national level, people can give you those reasons. But at a local level in Belfast, you find, you know, weapons are stolen from each other's dumps. Um, people simply get into fights with each other or people accuse each other of, 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 of doing various things that lead to these recurring clashes. Um, and, and it does poison life further in, in nationalist areas, in fact, and can, can make life kind of intolerable for people living there. And obviously has a very bad effect on the people who have to experience the, the violence too. Because what also happens is that the families of people involved are targeted and forced out of their homes because of, of one member's membership of the official or the official and so on. So yeah, this has a big, big negative effect. And you can see the echoes of them 50 years on in terms of how people still feel about this. Brian, we know that the provisional IRA went on to develop what they described as the long war strategy, which turned out to be a very long war indeed. But at the height of the troubles, the official IRA called a ceasefire. They, they, they went a completely different direction. By the spring of 1972, a couple of things had happened. Obviously, the, the violence had intensified to its worst point so far in the conflict. The officials had played their part in that in retaliation for Bloody Sunday, they bombed the uh, parachute regiment barracks at Aldershot in Hampshire and killed seven people, five of them um, cleaning ladies. Um, and that had a big effect on people's perception of, of violence, particularly in the South, but also on the officials themselves. They also attempted to assassinate John Taylor, a minister in the Unionist government. Uh, he survived. Um, and there was a debate within the officials as to whether their contribution to the armed struggle was actually making things worse. Um, some people began to argue, including Carl Goulding, the chief of staff, that ultimately there needed to be a ceasefire to allow a breathing space. And then hopefully issues like civil rights and so on could become um, important again. And also that the violence was driving Catholics and Protestants ever further apart and that the idea of republicanism should be to unite Catholic and Protestant working class, and that this was not going to happen in a conflict situation. So there's a variety of arguments, but ultimately the official IRA agreed in general to a ceasefire in May 1972. Again, there's a, another uh, incident in Derry where an off-duty British soldier who was home on leave was killed, Ranger William Best, and that caused a lot of bad feeling there. But nevertheless, there's a ceasefire agreed. Now, it's a conditional ceasefire. Um, the officials did not declare an end to their campaign. They said that they still retained the right to defence and retaliation. And that actually meant over the next five, six years, the officials did continue attacks on the security forces at various stages, along with other armed activities. But essentially, they argued that a, a ceasefire was necessary and that all the armed groups should also cease fire in, in May 1972. Brian, could you tell us more about Cahal Goulding, his background? Yeah, Goulding was kind of steeped in Dublin republicanism. His father had been out in Easter 1916 and had taken part in the War of Independence. And Cahal Goulding was a house painter. It was the family trade. And he joined the IRA at a very young age, along with a, uh, a young friend of his, Brendan Behan. 
and was jailed during the 1940s and then got out in the late 40s, became active again and was captured in an arms raid in Britain in 1953, along with a man called Sean Stevenson, became Sean McStephon, who would be the rival leader of the Provisional IRA um, a, a decade or so later. He's jailed in England for several years, then Goulding, and comes back in 1962. And the IRA's border campaign ends, and they're looking for a new chief of staff, and they appoint him. And Goulding, all those who've met him and talk about him, talk about a very kind of charismatic character, very much a Dubliner. Um, by the 1960s, had been looking back at his own involvement in republicanism and became more interested in the social and economic side in the writings of people like James Connolly and Liam Mellows and so on. So he he's very much a, a, a character of the 1960s in terms of global influences um, a, as well, but is widely respected within the Republican movement because of his own record going back to the late 1930s. Before I move on beyond, I suppose, the official IRA, I would like to touch on that they suffered a, a further split in 1974 and again, that led to a bloody feud with an offshoot from themselves. What happened there? Shortly after the official fleets fire, the movement began to discuss the way forward. And, and initially, Seamus Costello, the official IRA director of operations, and Sean Garland, who was a, a senior figure uh, as well, agreed that the national question should still be central and also that unless the officials grappled with that, they would lose support to the provisionals and others. Um, and against that, Carl Goulding and Tomás Megilla and other leadership figures argued that the movement had to, in many ways now, adopt a more openly socialist Republican strategy, which would emphasise unity between Protestant and Catholic and, and more hostility to the provisionals campaign as one of the issues that was dividing people. Now, Garland and, and Costello essentially fell out. And Costello began to argue that the officials were moving further and further away from the idea of a Republican strategy. And people who were upset at the ceasefire, people who believed the officials should be more militarily active, began to coalesce around Costello. And again, this is kind of an unstable coalition in some ways, but nevertheless, Costello became the figurehead for those within the official IRA who argued that they should be essentially competing with the provisionals. They should maintain a consistent armed strategy, and there were other differences as well. But nevertheless, it ultimately meant, because you're talking about the IRA, that the IRA leadership, official IRA leadership moved against Costello. They suspended him. They began to expel some of his supporters. And Costello then launched a new political party called the Irish Republican Socialist Party. And ultimately, that had its own armed wing, the Irish National Liberation Army. Now, the officials moved very quickly to try and prevent the INLA securing weapons and so on, particularly in Belfast. The INLA contained many young activists who'd been with the officials for, for a few years and, and they responded. And you had this very vicious feud between the officials and the INLA in the spring of, of, of 1974 that left several people dead, including Liam Macmillan, who'd been the longtime commander of the officials in Belfast and further made, made life again fairly intolerable in nationalist areas uh, with this feud going on while they were also under siege for loyalist attacks uh, 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 as well. And it weakened the officials in many ways because what they wanted to present was a national uh, position as a political movement going forward, particularly uh, to try and make an impression on Southern politics. But they were being dragged into these 
conflicts with former comrades. Now, they began that conflict themselves, but nevertheless, they suffered very badly, both in terms of loss of, 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 of individuals, but also politically they lost because they were still associated with armed violence in the, in the mind of people in the South. I mean, does, does the official IRA still exist? Could it still exist after 50 years? Or is, is there something still there? Uh, yeah, I think it does. What, what happened ultimately because of, of the need for a political movement primarily was that the officials around 1976-77 decided not to formally disband, but to rebrand in some ways internally the armed organisation as Group B. And to just not talk about it and then ultimately to deny its existence. Um, and, you know, I think Group B does exist in some form 50 years on. They never decommissioned. So there are official IRA weapons out there somewhere. But I suppose the existence of the official IRA remained an issue into the 1980s and 1990s because it began to dog the political predecessors of the officials, which was the Workers' Party, North and South. Um, but the compromise that they came up with in the 1970s was simply to not talk about the army's existence, to deny it in public if asked, and to essentially hope that this wouldn't come back to bite them. One of the, I suppose, the paradoxes was that the politics of the Workers' Party uh, had moved to a point in the 1980s where they were virulent critics of the provisional IRA, who they considered essentially fascists, who they blamed for essentially the entire conflict in many ways. They ultimately moved to a, a position of support for the security forces and called on people to support the RUC and so on. Um, and nevertheless, at the same time, you had a situation where people would ask, well, there are recurring rumours that armed robberies and so on are being carried out by the official IRA that ultimately official IRA members are traveling to the Soviet Union and further afield to North Korea even to be trained and that this organization is still in existence even though you denounce paramilitarism in your political uh, form. And now the Workers' Party would have denied all of that at the time, but I think, you know, um, retrospectively we can see by the mid-1990s that it becomes clear that the official IRA had remained in existence and was considered necessary in Belfast and elsewhere as a form of defence for the party, but was also considered necessary for fundraising and obviously potentially in the longer run as some kind of revolutionary vanguard um, as well. The Workers' Party, this obviously uh, it grew out of official Sinn Féin and eventually just became the Workers' Party. But you've hinted there, they became something very, very different from republicanism. Some would slam the Workers' Party they say they would almost have become neo-unionists. Certainly believers perhaps in the two nations theory of, of Irish life. Is that unfair? I think it's, it's, it's a, it is unfair because one of the things about the Workers' Party and um, we discovered when we, when we wrote about them and spoke to people who were active in them, of course, was that at its core in Belfast and elsewhere, there were people who always considered themselves Republicans and considered that the movement was the same movement they joined in the 1960s, for example, even if it had developed very different policies. But at a national level, what you began to see was on the one hand, the development of a left-wing working class party, and it was overwhelmingly in its membership working class, who were very active on the ground, who particularly in the Republic of Ireland had a situation where you had the Labour Party that was often in coalition, was pretty discredited. 
So the Workers' Party began to rival it and to argue that we were the real socialists in many ways. And within that, you had people who might have been social democrats in another uh, in another uh, polity, or people who were Republican socialists, or people who were Marxists, or indeed would have been in the Communist Party in, a, in another part of the world. So in many ways, it was much broader, but certainly it had a very uh, public image as a disciplined socialist party. And in Northern Ireland, their big selling point, of course, was that they believed, you know, in unity between Catholic and Protestant, and they believed the violence had to end, um, and that it was it was a disaster, particularly for the working class. And there was, you know, I think a great deal of credit in that argument. Uh, no matter what about their background or what they said, they attempted to argue that there was a different, you know, a, a different way forward within the context uh, of the North. So you had an All Ireland Party. Um, you had a party that still believed in many ways in a united Ireland, if a socialist one. But within it, you did have people like Owen Harris, for example, who did come pretty close to becoming unionists, who really saw themselves as needing to exaggerate the goodness of the unionists and damn the badness, as they saw it, of the nationalists. And that, in many ways, also did a lot of damage to the Workers' Party's image because it became seen as a party which continually criticised Sinn Féin or, or the Provisional IRA or the SDLP, which had, had nothing critical to say about the unionists or about the British government. Um, and that affected it, obviously, in its, its old heartlands in, in the nationalist north. But also then that it, it operated very differently north and south of the border, because in the south it operated basically as, a, as an activist socialist party that had an order and policy, but which didn't stress it because most voters in the south most of the time weren't that concerned about it. But it is fair to say, Brian, that the many people in the Workers' Party went on an incredible political journey, which ended up for many people in the Irish Labour Party. Yeah, I mean, you've got, firstly, they disproportionately have an influence in the student union movement, the union students in Ireland, then in the trade union movement, a large number of, of, of their members become trade union officials. A um, number of them work in RTE, in the media, in the press, and so on. And then ultimately, as political shifts begin to take place, uh, there's a split in 1992 uh, about the future of the party, which is partly brought about by the effect of the collapse of, of the Eastern Bloc uh, and communism, and also partly because of revelations about the continuing existence uh, of the official IRA. And a core group of people argue the Workers' Party should continue on, it, on its path. A large group of, they had seven TDs in, in Leinster House at the time. Six of them agree to break away and form a new political party called Democratic Left. One, Tomás Magilla, remains with the Workers' Party. He later loses his seat. The Democratic Left TDs then, later on in the 1990s, joined the Labour Party in the South en masse. And they disproportionately are successful there. So... Both Pat Rabbit and Eamon Gilmore, who'd started off as Workers' Party TDs, indeed had started off as official Sinn Féin members, end up as leaders of the Irish Labour Party in the 2000s. That was Dr Brian Hanley. He's a lecturer in history in Trinity College Dublin. He's the author of the IRA 1926-36 and is co-author of The Lost Revolution, the story of the official IRA and the Workers' Party. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time Imon Irokti Yen of Chacht Erachor, 
agus sólgum a machan seo gur féidir é chór in úig ceart lena winter féin skilti fis turmi tashe dochreche nach vetach ara igornamion on question echo vien tolam ginom griv or kar nachtum yatak shetarin griven or kar son elis du halagis gmene fracht gor klig sar dukishen echer now ni ven own tardarakshin ven marav shachten find us on all the usual podcast platforms.